So I found that when I sat with people uh, and they had a job and they described it to me or they played a little bit of their music and they told me what they wanted, I could actually visualize pretty well what they wanted. So I would like, you know, say, this is what you're talking about, right? And so I just became the guy that could like, you know, talk to, to really creative people and have them, you know, expose like a, a, a vision. And I was able to draw it pretty close to what they wanted. You're listening to Lights, Camera, Crypto, the podcast exploring all things entertainment and Web3. I'm your host, Stephen Ladden. And this week, our guest is legendary artist Jim Evans. In this episode, Jim discusses his path through the art world, beginning as a youngster with outside-the-box ideas, a dislike for authority, and a love of music. He talks about how pursuing his interests and sticking with art led him to collaborate on music posters and album covers for groups like the Foo Fighters, Beastie Boys, and Neil Young. Jim also talks about his foray into Web3, his motivations behind it, and his thoughts on the future of digital art and the art world as a whole. Let's dive in. Jim, welcome to the podcast. Good to be here. Really curious for my own personal benefit and that of the listeners, you know, you've, you've been a longtime artist. What growing up was, was that always the vision? Was that always the path? How did, how did you get into the space and, and sort of what was the early incarnation of what we now know and see with your work? I'd say that, that, uh, you know, as, as the beginning, as a child, I mean, I was always an artist, but, uh, when you have a natural talent, um, you know, when I look back in retrospect, I think I dismissed the, uh, my natural ability because it actually came so easy to me. Mm. And I didn't really think about it when I was, when I was younger. I mean, I did, I did things like in sixth grade, like I did a, a little t-shirt company where I'd have, you know, like kids like pick out pictures in the hot rod magazines that they liked and they, they would like give them to me and I'd charge them a quarter and I'd buy all the equipment I need and stuff like that. Then I'd get a t-shirt, I'd put it on my mother's breadboard and I'd draw like whatever picture they want to bring it back another quarter. So for 50 cents, they had like a, a hand-drawn t-shirt and like a little business like that. But I never really took art. I mean, I, w- I wanted to, to do other things. I mean, I like sports a lot, but I wasn't really a good team player. So I went towards sports like, you know, singular sports, more like tennis and surfing and things like that. But I kind of just got burned out on that. Then I discovered surfing. I liked that a lot, uh, but I wasn't going to become a professional surfer. So I started a rock band probably at about 14 years old. And that seemed to really fulfill my creative impulses, you know. I mean, I still drew, like I drew for the band, and I did drum heads, and I did little posters, and I, I would decorate people's guitars and things like, you know, put things on the back they could hold up when we were playing. So I, I added a lot to that, but at the same time, I still didn't really take art as like something that uh, would be something I could make a living on. You know, I mm-hmm. thought that, that other things were a career, that art, at best, I would be a guy working at Disney, maybe like in a big building and, and cranking out like in-betweeners or something like that. So setting myself aside as a, a Norman Rockwell or like a legendary character that actually could make a living as an artist, I saw like the landscape seemed really, really thin. But I never really considered it. Like whereas rock guitarists, I could see, it seemed like an enormous amount of people made money in bands, you know? I mean, sure. you have a band with like five people in it. And I thought, well, hell, I mean, it's like, I don't have to be the lead guitarist, but at the same time, I mean, the rhythm guitar is going to make a living at it, right? So right. I saw the music as being a thing. Then, uh, I, I mean, really, it's sort of Uncle Sam's fault. I mean, it was like the Vietnam War was raging. I was like uh, 1A. Um, I wasn't married. I mean, I had a girlfriend and all. And uh, I was like sort of biding my time at a, a junior college in an art class. And my girlfriend, like, 
showed my stuff to the art teacher and said, you know, Jim's like trying to figure out like how to, you know, get some credits and stuff like that. He's doing really shitty in school here. Obviously, I wasn't paying attention to anything, <laughs> the surfing and playing in the band all night long. And this guy like just said, wow, this stuff is good. I can, you know, he puts together a portfolio. I get him into like uh, Chouinard, like a really good art school up in LA. So that was a thing. It's like suddenly I, I, I had a chance to get maybe into a reserve unit and go to school and get some credits and things like that. So art school made sense because I, obviously I could do art. Right. And that led to, to uh, you know, to meeting a bunch of people who like boosted my career really quickly. I never really finished art school because like, I started getting work so quick that, mm. uh, and then, uh, of course, real life uh, engaged and, and you had to make a living. And at that point, I was just getting tired of playing guitar in bands because it was just an endless struggle with people, you know, and they like art. I could just basically sit down and do it myself. And at that point, I could actually do something and turn it in and get money for it. So then right. I was like, okay, well, I'm not, you know, Norman Rockwell, but at the same time, I'm making money at it. So that's good. And then I got design jobs too. I worked in magazines and I did, uh, you know, design. So it became like a fallback position. Like I knew I could get a, a job as a, as a head designer at like any magazine just because I just, I could adapt really well. Mm -hmm. And my natural ability for art would lead to it. And then at night, I'd work on these underground cartoons and comic books because of all the stuff that was coming out of San Francisco was like really inspiring me. Then I ran into this guy, Rick Griffin, who was a big, uh, like psychedelic artist at the time, cranking out these posters. And he wanted to go surfing, and I was a surfer. And we met, and he started giving me work, and it basically just boosted me up. So I went from like almost like zero to 60 in a really, really <laughs> short period of time. Sure. So from being like, uh, you know, like a guy who was about to get drafted and, and dead ending it like in Oceanside at what, 19, early 68 to by 69, I was doing my first album cover. So it was a pretty compressed period. I probably, you know, there was like eight or 10 lives lived in that really short period that went from like, you know, well, what would I ever do with art? You know, what would I ever do with art? But suddenly I was doing things with art. I was making money. I was moving forward and I was getting bigger and bigger jobs. So I didn't really question like, uh, like, wow, you're going to have to learn how to draw, right? No, I already know how to draw. So it, one thing led to another. And I think that period was a, a, a really ripe period for creativity. So the fact that I didn't finish, I mean, when I was in art school, uh, you know, I wanted to learn a few things, but I began to see that, like, I knew pretty much what they were teaching me. It's like I had intuitively sort of knew these things, but at the same time, I wasn't going to be Michelangelo. Like, I knew I go into life drawing class and I go, oh, damn, this is like, these people are good. I mean, I could like spend the rest of my life here and I'm not going to be able to draw a figure like that. And I thought, you know, maybe during this period, it's like my, my inability to be able to do certain things would lead me to create this sort of mutant style. And because mm. people were looking for really different kind of styles, like I would say at that time, uh, imagination was more important than knowledge to, uh, you know, to, to the, that particular industry, the creativity industry. And you had posters, you had album covers, you had magazines that all needed illustrations. And they wanted quirky things, things that like, you know, so I basically concentrated on creating my own style as opposed to like trying to be a really good artist. And really in the back of my mind, I kept thinking that, um, you know, I'm going to be called out as a fraud because I'm just making this stuff up as I go along. It's like, you know, they're going to say, well, you know, yeah, he's making a living at it, but he's a really not that good of an artist. I mean, he can't draw people very good or he's really terrible at horses. So I thought, so you see like, if you look at some of my early posters, you see where I, I, I had a job where I had to put a character in, and I could only draw so much of the character so fast and make the deadline. So basically what I would do is I would truncate the character and take out the part that were really difficult, and then I would build like a, a, an edifice around it, like a really cool design, 
and I was really good at hand lettering. So I would do the hand lettering. And you see, so my early album covers basically are based on design and hand lettering. And then the character just kind of like stuck in there, you know? Mm -hmm. And that became my sin. And color was always, I was always good at color. So you can see how I went from a little kid who, you know, I was always a guy that could draw in class to a professional artist in pretty short order, but not like, I wasn't the kind of guy that sat at a desk and thought like, huh, what am I going to do with my life, right? right. It was more like a series of, of uh, uh, circumstances that led me to finally grab the thing that I was actually really, really good at right. and say like, yeah. Well, and, and, and what's really cool about that too is it sounds like you were pursuing, as you mentioned, with surfing and the bands, your interests were at the forefront of what you were, what was guiding you. And so the confluence of, or the convergence rather, of, of art and your skill set and what you enjoyed was, was organically kind of weaving in and out of each other and, and coming together in really interesting ways. Yeah, it actually was. Yeah, so I've always been lucky to be able to do the things that I, I like to do and things that were close to me. So I've never had to bend myself into like areas that like I was uncomfortable doing. It wasn't like I had to sell out to do, uh, you know, I could always make money doing things I like or I could sell out and do like uh, an ad for like a giant condominium. Like when I was a boy, <laughs> right. uh, I like, I really concentrated on, on art that I liked and things that I thought were, you know, helpful to uh, just to the world in general, like imagery. I and, and yet I turned down like, you know, big condo ads and things like that because I just thought they were destroying the world that I thought was a really beautiful, you know. I went to Hawaii and I thought, I should just give this place back to Hawaiian. I mean, because it's so beautiful. And yet I could see condominiums going up and gigantic hotels. And they always say, yeah, you can make a fortune, like working for the advertising agencies and doing, you know, advertising that stuff. And I thought, nah, I'd rather make less money and, and just, you know, do what I like to do. Right. And, and I like how also you, you mentioned that there was a little bit of imposter syndrome, syndrome from, from not, uh, you know, being able to draw a horse, as you say, but yet coming up with stuff on the fly and, and making your style sort of the prerogative was being proficient at what you were doing, you know? Right. 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 And, and so I think for, for a lot of artists who might be listening, it's like leaning into what you find inspiring or, or quirky or or leaning into that style is the style it's not you don't have to be something else that you think you need to be it's kind of using you as an example doing what just comes naturally and that can be the thing yeah i think if, if you're a creative person i don't know about musicians as much i guess musicians say you know they got the rock band thing where it's artists they definitely are pigeonholed into like an area where you think you've got to be an artist you've got to be an artist who can do this or you got to be an artist who can do watercolor and things like that. So when you're a little kid, you're kind of constrained. I mean, think about it. When you when you think about it, like all little kids, like in first grade, are artists, right? And then in second grade, there's last, third grade, there's last. By the time you're in sixth grade, it was like me and like the little girl that sat over in the corner and like one strange guy that like, you know, was on the other side of the class. We could draw and like nobody else could draw. So we're, everybody's like, hey, Jim, draw Mickey Mouse or you like, you know, draw this or draw that. Right, and then right. by the time you're in high school, there's like only a handful of people that can really can say that they're they're artists, you know. I mean, everybody good, takes art class, but at the same time, what are they doing? They're making like ashtrays and uh, out of clay, and right. you know, <laughs> they're 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 doing it for the for the grade, and and perhaps not because they thoroughly enjoy the experience. Right. So you can see how uh, uh, I would guess uh, the final pressure uh, like sucks the creativity out of out of 
little human, you know, totally as they grow totally. up. Right? Yeah, yeah, in, in a variety of different fields, and and we're talking creatively, but I mean, that that compulsion of guidance from parents of, well, you, you know, how is that going to make you money? It's like, well, that that can figure itself out. Why don't I first put myself towards something that I'm really passionate about and let that kind of happen? Because right. Chances are, if you're really passionate about something, you're going to figure out a way to have that monetization at some point come through, or you'll see connections as to how that can be a product that people would would dig. Right. But when you're a little kid, of course, you're that's, not, that's not, a, that's not <laughs> totally. an option to you. No, I'm right. Constantly asking you, like, yeah, how are you going to make a living at this? How are you going to do that? You're like, I don't know. I, I don't know. Yeah. Right. Right. And 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 it's it, to your point. It's such an interesting thing because. As a kid, you're not necessarily then, because you don't have an answer for it, you're like, oh, I guess maybe this isn't a viable path. When in reality, right. it's one of the best things you can do. Right, right. Yeah, so like uh, the high school art teacher, like said, I was like the worst student he ever had. He said, not you're the worst student because you're like a terrible artist. He said, you're actually one of the best artists I've ever had in here. He said, like, I would never ever want to see you in this class again. And then, he, and then after I started getting really well known, he invited me back to talk to the class and show my work and say like, you know, how I, how I grew up in Oceanside. I ended up like getting in the Hall of Fame there, and my picture sits exactly where I used to sit in detention all the time, like, right <laughs> in the hallway. I mean, so to me, that was like the ultimate irony. I mean, when I when they finally, you know, like years ago, when they finally put me in the Hall of Fame, and they got my picture, and they had the ceremony and stuff, and I went in the hall by, you know, like the, I mean, the school is exactly the same as it was when I was there. I said, you realize this picture is like sitting right beneath the bench where I sat for like <laughs> detention all the time? That's amazing. That's amazing. It is kind of weird, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, and and it just goes to show, you know, like everybody has a unique path, and and there's no right or wrong way to get from A to B. Yeah. Well, I, I, my mother never bought into it. She even to uh, to, to her final days said that you know you're gonna you know you think you got all these ideas, so you're gonna run out of ideas, and then you're gonna not be able to draw all the pictures you draw all the time. She's like she was always convinced that one morning I would wake up and I wouldn't be that imaginative little kid that she remembers in sixth grade or eighth seventh grade or eighth graders i grew up and made a living and bought a much bigger house than hers and she was like always convinced <laughs> that some someday that my big ideas were just gonna evaporate because they were just the, the ideas of a uh a deranged little kid right wait and yet that some could argue that's you you tapping into that youthful creativity and and those i guess how did how did you manage to not let how did you manage to stay tapped into those ideas rather than letting voices such as in this case your moms and others who might have been call them uh unintentional naysayers how did you how did you stay your course and lean into those ideas i think and i'm not exactly sure why i mean i can't i can't really look back and figure out exactly why but i didn't really listen to authority figures that much i mean i would listen to them because they didn't want to get in trouble but at the same time i would I would just go about my business, you know, like I would go, uh huh, uh huh, uh huh. And then I would just, I didn't think that they were right. I just, I just, they just didn't seem right to me, you know? I mean, I would see examples in the world that seemed to me like empirically correct paths to what I wanted to go to. And I thought that, you know, I, I don't want, I hate to call my parents narrow, but I mean, I thought <laughs> their thinking was, was like narrow, you know? I mean, they, they saw it on a much narrower path. I wanted a much bigger bite of life. And I knew even as a little kid, that 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 was uh they weren't right you know i, mm -hmm. I just didn't uh but i didn't argue with them right <laughs> yeah well what, what can you? You, you what can you do it's it, it, you can i think though that you're ta you're mentioning something really critical which is 
that juncture where you realize that perhaps you have a different alignment or set of values or, or, or motivations than your parents. And then there's sort of that, well, they might not see what ha- my perspective. I see their perspective. Fighting them is not going to do anything. I, we just have to kind of accept our differences and I have to live my life. Yeah. Well, I felt that, I felt that they never would. They, they never really got it. But at the same time, I didn't really worry about it. You know how some people like, you know, even grown people like look back and say like, well, God, I really want to give my parents approval. And it's like, yeah. I didn't even think that when I was like a little kid. I wasn't worried about it. I didn't, I thought, I'm just kind of different. So I, I just took that as, a, you know, the way I was going to be, mm. let it be. So, and it sounds like then, so from an early age, you knew, you felt that you were different, which it sounds like was able, which, which sounds like freed you creatively to lean into those ideas that would come up and, and not fear the judgment or non-acceptance from you know, as you said, the authority or parents or whomever, it was just, it sounds like right. it freed you up to just do you. Yeah. That, and that might've been, that might've been my salvation. Mm-hmm. You know, the fact that I wasn't, I wasn't waiting for, uh, you know, acknowledgement from any other source. I thought that like, you know, I'd look around me and I thought, this is like the world's pretty easy. I can just figure this out, you know, but maybe that was just, maybe that was just sheer ego of, of uh, you know, like, I don't know. <laughs> I knew that, I knew that I thought differently than everyone else. So that was clear. Yeah. How did the convergence of music and art come together with some of the, I mean, you've worked with uh, some of the most well-known artists, you know, in, in the music industry. How did, how did your work kind of converge with your love and affinity for music and, and art and the creation of posters and stuff like that? I would say it, I never really, it didn't converge as much as it just only existed. I mean, my love of music has always been like, like, key to anything i mean I, I listen to music like literally all day long there's like soundtrack to my life i mean when i'm working i have music on all the time if i walk around i just i just listen to a lot of music and i, I like a lot of music so i love music and uh i would say as a musician i didn't i wasn't like a natural musician i really wanted to play rock and roll and i just learned the rock and roll chords and then i just you know i put a record on and i played 60 times and i keep working on it until i got the key you know and then i could i could learn like literally anything i could put on my my uh, record player and i started a band like really young because i thought you know hard can it be i just need a drummer i just need a bass player bang we got a band right sure and and then we started playing surf music and then of course then the, the british invasion happened so then uh then we got into that whole like sort of british invasion sound and like the you know the, the big sound of the 60s and we were like doing battles of the band with like uh you know different like full groups and things like that so it became like i was exactly the guy that i saw on television I suddenly realized that I didn't have to be, uh, I didn't have to be me anymore. I was like the guy in the band. So I, I liked that, uh, you know, sinking into that. So my love of music was totally complete. So when I started working on um, album covers, I've always been good at like visualizing something and drawing. Even a little kid, if I wanted to, if I wanted to draw a cow, I couldn't draw a cow. It just basically projected on. But I found that when I sat with people uh, and they had a job and they described it to me or they played a little bit of their music and they told me what they wanted, I could actually visualize pretty well what they wanted so i would like you know say this is what you're talking about right and so i just became the guy that could like you know talk to, to really creative people and have them you know exposit like a, a a vision and i was able to draw it pretty close to what they wanted you know like i, I just uh, talked to robbie krieger the other night i think uh he remembered uh like god it had to be like 50 years ago right after the doors broke up and after jim morrison died he started a band robbie krieger and friends it was his first solo album 
And the record company sent me over to his house and they, uh, they said, just do whatever Robbie wants. He's got his own ideas, right? So he came up with this idea of like, he wanted to be a shaman standing in the desert and he wanted to be kind of hovering above the desert with his guitar and he wanted like a really psychedelic le- desert landscape and all. I could visualize all that. So he said, okay. I said, well, can I take a picture of you? Then he started standing there in his short. I'm going to take a picture. And I thought, you know what? I said, do you have like anything else besides that to wear? And so he goes to his closet and he has like this white suit. And he says, I never wear this. He said, but I bought it for some, some uh, performance we we're going to do. I said, so, okay, put on the white suit, right? Then I had him stand on a chair in the kitchen. I took the picture and then I had everything I needed for the album cover. I could do the desert. I could do the eagles flying through the sky and the weird clouds. But then there's Robbie, like, you know, floating above the desert. So I was able to do pretty much exactly what he wanted. Wow. And then on the other side of the album, he, he described himself. He said, so I want the same desert scene, except that I want the sky to be like the sun's going down. And he said, the wind has blown the clouds. And my figure is now a cloud pulling the guitar behind me and shading off into the distance. I said, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it's really just listening to what someone's describing, letting your own imagination take work and, and trusting as you've done over the course of your career those creative instincts and just letting it happen. Yeah. It's not the easy world's easiest thing to do, but at the same time, it's like uh, that if, you know, maybe I can't draw something as well as I could, but at the same time, my, my uh, uh, ability to imagine something that somebody described, like right now you could describe something to me and I could probably draw it out and show it to you and you go like, that's, that's exactly what I'm thinking. So I think that I'm, that's like one of my superpowers. That's actually mm. one, one thing I'm actually pretty good at. Is is being tapped in artistically to the minds of the people you're collaborating with? Yeah, yeah. I think uh, one thing too. I don't know if, if this is like helpful to other artists, but uh, I get into uh, a lot of philosophy. Uh, you know, like delving into like basically all the world's religions, and then really not finding exactly what I'm looking for there. Then I get into Carl Jung and and uh, Jungian unconscious, and that actually led me to a place. It helped me understand, like it opened doors for me that that, that uh, allowed me to, I thought, intellectually understand the way other people thought. You know, that there was a, a, like almost like a giant radio station. I just needed to tune into it. Mm-hmm. And tuning into that radio station, I could sit with you and I could engage your mind and understand in that collective unconscious exactly what you were thinking. Like, you know, the source of your thinking and like be able to translate that. So I found that having a, a philosophical basis going on inside my head while I'm creating the imagery was was a, a strong component of like what I did. I, like I wouldn't have felt good just being a risk, you know, like a guy that could draw pictures, right? To me I had to have like a philosophy and that made me a little bit more dangerous, maybe. I, yeah. More than just a risk, you're saying perhaps tapping into that spiritual element of life and that as you mentioned, the collective unconscious, there's understanding how that functions inevitably can just add value where people might even not even know what exactly you're sort of playing with. Exactly right. Yeah. I mean, the way, uh, you know, the way I manipulate the eye or the way I manipulate surfaces or the colors that I use or the shapes that I use are based on like, like philosophical things, you know, the, the, the Greek golden mean and things like that. I mean, these, these things are all in my mind. I mean, I use, I use French curves to get like certain angles and things like that because I think there's a, an elegance to a French curve that I couldn't possibly create uh, on my own. I have no idea how it was created, but I think there's a, a truth to it. So mm. I try to find these these basic truths and like assemble them into like you know what some people would say like are weird images, possibly weird images, but at the same time, the 
the uh, the foundation of them is based in like a, a philosophy, right? Mm-hmm. And so I could draw like a cartoon character, or I could draw like a like a deity, you know, like a, a Tibetan deity, and they both contain the same power because they're both based on the same foundation. So it's not like I'm like trying to you know be like a Tibetan guy or like I'm trying to be Mickey Mouse. It's like for me, it's all all the same. Yet I try to create a certain kind of power and communicate these images. So I want my Mickey Mouse to be as Mickey as possible. And I want my Tibetan deity to be, have a certain spirituality, like a depth to it, you know? And do you think that that's what's enabled you to work? I mean, you've worked with, uh, just on the music side of things, you know, folks from Nirvana to the Beastie Boys to, to Aerosmith. Like, do you think having that foundation of truth allows you to transcend different genres and different collaborations and work with a variety of different people? And, and as you were mentioning before, work with a different a variety of different minds absolutely yeah i think it, ha- it has a lot to do with that because i find myself uh completely flexible so i don't go in like carrying any kind of baggage at all like if i if it's the beastie boys or it's or it's uh you know john coltrane's wife who was the first one i i did an album cover for i mean she was into a, egyptian mysticism right so i go in completely as an empty as an empty vessel and then i allow the the uh the person i'm doing the thing for to fill that vessel and then i go home and i i mix it up in my alchemical uh laboratory and and uh come back with something creative alchemy creative alchemy in terms of your process and your output web3 it's a new sort of avenue for you what inspired you to get into that space and how has it been sort of adding web3 as another weapon in your artistic arsenal i think that well i mean it starts out with computers. I mean, once I first discovered computers uh, and the use that computers can be to play any kind of tool, becomes like another tool. But at the same time, Web3 like opens up a, a new storytelling avenue, I think. One of the things about the internet is that it opens up like literally every time period to uh, exploitation. I mean, that's, that's one thing I noticed throughout most of my career was the fact that like you would, if I was in a slot, I couldn't really get out of that slot. I could only do like what was like hot at that time i mean i could have done something else but people would have gone like what the hell is that so like any design i do you can see as i went through the period you can see how my design evolves but it really reflects the colors and the changes and the, and the mood of the time all the time i never really tried to get off the boat and go outside the uh you know like what i felt was the the collective uh, acceptance of a certain look or feel you know i always built around that i say right now with with computers and the, and the internet and uh, I mean Web3 particularly, that it opens up like the entire world. Uh, and AI, the infusion of AI becomes like another element that uh, that literally make it almost throws everything into place simultaneously. It's not like um, you, you can think very singularly anymore. It's, it's like you have to think not even globally. It's more like you think in like all time and eternity simultaneously you become almost like uh, like your own little universe in some ways. I mean, I would say that the, the, the Web3 component opens up a, a storytelling aspect that hadn't really been there before. Like people are interested in a lot of different things that they weren't interested in before. Mm-hmm. And it, it reminds me of the 60s a little bit where suddenly like, you know, grown-ups got interested in comic books and oddball things, just strange things where the 50s were really buttoned down. It was like this sort of grinding like society like trying to recover from like endless wars right like in the 50s like everybody you knew 
their father was like in the war, right? So everything was a war. It was like the war. In the 60s, it was basically the whole thing just exploded and everything was like thrown out on the table. And you had like, you know, Art Nouveau and Art Deco and like, you know, comic books and Marvel comics and things like that all thrown into this giant stew. I would say that a lot of people don't recognize it as much, but, you know, Web3 is a similar kind of a thing with, uh, uh, basically an, an explosion of many, many different kinds of forms of art. Like people from all over the world uh, are engaged in it simultaneously. So you have to think of like a, a like a, a global scenario in, for your art. You don't have to really think of like, I'm a California guy. I live in Malibu. I got to do this kind of like sort of California. I don't really feel like I feel like I can do almost anything from anywhere on the globe. And if I do it well enough, like there's going to be somebody out there that sees it because it's like, the Web3 net is just so universal. Hmm. So it's it's in many ways expanding the reach of and building a community around your art in a in a more one that building upon the community that already exists, both professionally and, and otherwise. And then also enabling a whole new group of folks to reach that, that you can reach through the technology, basically. Right. Right. I mean, the reach of technology is, is off the charts. I mean, when I can do like an AI search on myself and basically draw a picture and feed it into our, to the, uh, the AI grinder and have it do it in my style, that's just like me sitting in, and doing 10 sketches. Right. Why would I do 10 sketches when I can just like feed myself into the machine and grind out 10 sketches? <laughs> so in that way, AI has been a, a tool to help your own productivity. I think so, yeah. Oh, it's also an eye opener. I mean, I we haven't. You didn't really ask me about AI. Specifically, asked me about Web three. Is it okay if I delve yeah, into yeah, AI? Please. Yeah, yeah. I think that. Uh, I mean, for an artist, it's like surprising eye opener because you figure that we're in uh, the the Neanderthal stage of like AI, right? At this point, I mean, we're basically like you know putting our hands in charcoal and 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 putting them on the cave wall and making like buffalo and right. stuff. But and yet. The sophistication that I see in what it puts out is is uh, is sobering in some ways because I, you know, I, I see some pieces that that uh, it, it'll crack out a piece. And I'm looking at it thinking like, this like embodies like literally everything I've ever learned about art in one piece. How did they exactly do this, right? And they say, well, it's you know, it it scratches this and scratches that, and it brings up and it looks all at all the best stuff. And I say, there's a lot of best stuff. I mean, there's like you know, neo-expressionism. There's like uh, you know. Abstract expressionism, there's cubism. It's like, how does it separate it all and give me exactly what I want there? I mean, we're talking about like composition and and the visual, you know, inclination of the eye to go where it's supposed to go, moving background to the background, gaining, all these different things that are like things that have taken me a lifetime to learn that I put in my pieces, but at the same time, this machine just cranks it out by what? <laughs> right, like, because like, like, it's not obviously it's not understanding the truths that we were talking about earlier. It's not understanding that same. It doesn't have the same. Con well, say AI, it doesn't have a consciousness to it. But it's yeah. not understanding the truths that are going into your input. It's just, is it just reading what's already? Is it reading the output that you've created using those truths and just figuring out? Okay, this is probably similar to those outputs like how how is that all coming together it, it appeared that it does i i mean i, I didn't build ai how they how they constructed it or what it works but i mean my mind boggles when i think of like what 
AI can do with art on a quantum computer. I mean, they don't have it. I mean, they're not even using it on quantum computers yet, are they? They're using it on like just regular computers. So, I, I, I think still so, cranking, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's still cranking out like amazing, amazing stuff. I mean, you see the art. I mean, you could say, okay, well, it's a little bit stiff. I mean, the only thing that separates me from that is the fact that like I'm a human being and I, I can pick up a pen and draw, right? So the machine is never going to be able to do that. So as long as you have humans, uh, you know, it's like, so the, it's not like John Henry, like fighting against the, uh, the, uh, the railroad. No, it's not like we're going to fight like, you know, artists are going to fight like a final battle against this machine, <laughs> which I think that a lot of people think that like, there's going to be some gigantic battlefield where we're after the, we have to beat it out. You know, it's like the machine is on one side and me with my pencil and stuff on the other side. It's not, it's definitely like a powerful tool, the way Photoshop was a powerful tool and, and the way Illustrator was a powerful tool. I mean, when I did the Beastie Boys album cover, I mean, Illustrator and uh, a photographer had just been created. And Mike D wanted me to create like an alphabet for him. And I did it sort of like a high school uh, drafting alphabet because he wanted this high school draft. He just had this thing in his head. And so I, I could do that. I did it really well, but I would have had to do all the letters. Like back when I did uh, Neil Young's Rust Never Sleep, to do like a of rusty letters for him. And I had to actually photograph each letter on a piece of mylar, you know, and, and, and transfer it to a machine so it could be animated. So that's a really long process. Sure. With photographer, we could have, I could just do like a really quick A, B, C, D, E, F, G, all the way to Z, put it in photographer and create an alphabet that they could set the type for the entire album. So that seemed revolutionary to me at the time. I was, I thought, wow, this really changes things a lot. You know? Right. And of course, right. it's a couple of hours from then. Yeah, and so so in many ways, you're the way you're. It sounds like you're you're thinking about AI now too. Is this is just the next evolution of the photography that you're talking about? You know, a couple uh, a couple decades ago to to now, it's it's just different applications for the next evolution of the tech in the industry. I think so, but of course, I'm not living in the future yet, so I don't know <laughs> where it's all going to take us. <laughs> At the end of the day, it, it, it sounds like. From a, from a tool perspective, you mentioned the the Beastie Boys album and and uh, the work with Neil Young. The tools helped you achieve the vision that you ultimately wanted to achieve in you know cutting down on the time and and it just sim simplified that equation. So, gleaning from what you're saying today, it sounds like AI as we're you know, as you mentioned, putting putting the, the the handprint on the wall, it's 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 helping us, helping artists create in perhaps a, a faster way, in the same way that these other tools that have come before it have helped that same process. I believe so. Yeah, I mean, how much we can accelerate this process, I'm not sure. I mean, back when I was starting painting album covers. I thought you had to paint, you know, like I thought, if I don't paint, like people are going to think I suck at art, I mean, because I have to really paint. And, but the, the deadlines just started eating my brain, right? I thought like, I can't paint fast enough to do these things, right? So I started using an airbrush and I could, I could do a sky like in, in 20 minutes with an airbrush, whereas doing like a painted sky with acrylic, it could take me like two days, right? To get a blend down or something like that. But then I, I started using airbrush and it was another thing where I felt like I was going to be revealed as a fraud because I wasn't actually painting by hand. I was actually using an airbrush, which was at that time a really uh, despicable commercial art tool. It was like something that like old artists use on billboards and, you know, like in ads in the 40s and things like that. But I thought, what the hell with it? It's like, I don't think, who's going to know really, right? 
Right. And I started, uh, I could paint a lot faster than ever that. Then I became like a really, really good airbrush artist. Not because I really was trying to become a good airbrush artist, just because it led to getting things done faster. I mean, I could do an album cover in four or five days. If I'd have had to hand paint that, wait for paint to dry and stuff like that, what, three weeks? Right. And I mean, and those, and uh, you know, you know, it's like working with a record company or like a movie company or something like that. If you don't have the poster done, you don't have the album cover done, that's a multi million dollar like campaign. And at 10, 10 a.m. on Monday morning, they want the art sitting on their desk. Right. So they don't care really how it's done. Right. Right. And it, it, it's fascinating to hear then that, that some of the, those pivots that you made, which in the back of your head, you're thinking, oh, this is going to expose me, were actually ways in which your process became faster and also potentially helped pave the way for others to go in that same direction that they might not have otherwise decided to pursue. Exactly right. Right. And, wow. you know, the Web3 right now is, is leading a lot of people in a lot, lots of different ways. I mean, you see just, you know, companies starting up and hardly even know, like, even what they do. They're, like, making billions of dollars, right? So it's, it's a transformational period. And I, I just, I mean, I like the future better than the past always. So I, I jump on board with anything. I don't really, like, question uh, whether, like, some technology is going to end the world or, like, you know, make me uh, like a midwife for uh, a robotic society. I mean, that's really not for me to solve, you know? Yeah. You're working creatively aligned with, with the people that in the projects that you work on and, and executing on those using tapping into that uh, imaginative uh, creativity, it, you know, that's, and, and, and whatever tools help you do that, it sounds like you, you embrace. Yeah, I'm working with a company called Creator right now to put my uh, everything I have on a blockchain. So that it's basically a, a blockchain authenticity because, I mean, I have a lot of stuff and I don't really have it all in one place. I've got it like spread from like, uh, you know, warehouses in Venice to my upstairs to, you know, all over the floor here in the studio. And like there's crap all over the place. But at the same time, some of this crap is like, you know, really valuable. There's like a piece of paper that like originally was worth $1. Now it's worth like $3,000, right? I want to keep that piece of paper. So I'm, I'm, I'm working with them to put like basically my entire world on the blockchain mm -hmm. and use that as like a authenticity. So if somebody buys something, then they know it's been bought and it's like right there in the mathematical equation, right? Rather than like getting a piece of paper from me saying, well, I bought this thing from the artist. Like I feel that, that uh, you know, whatever happens with NFTs, the blockchain is, is a pretty substantial way to go for me in terms of like, uh, you know, setting up an archive for my lifetime work, which would entail thousands and thousands of pieces of work. And, and in that way, is it is it sort of a one-for-one, one, you're using blockchain to authenticate, say you have that piece of paper that's now worth 3K, is that, that you would have that put on the chain, and so that's your certificate of authenticity, essentially, for, you know, there's only one physical, and right. would there be a digital twin or is it is it literally just to authenticate all of the physical pieces probably i would probably try to create a digital twin i mean i think i'd be just wasting my time if i didn't it just <laughs> seemed like it seemed logical to do to do that to take advantage of it you know to do it you know, rather than just like uh you know create like a, a library of my stuff like do everything i could possibly do i mean if somebody buys it then of course it's bought right, right. so i could have I, it could easily be set up as a thing that people could just look through and decide like Wow, I really want that Jane Fonda from like 1982, right? And they could buy it from me, and I could wrap it up and send it to them. So, 
it becomes like a, a giant storefront for me at the same time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and 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 uh, a quite easy to track, verifiable way rather than going through the transit, the traditional, you know, you have a slip or a piece of paper, and then you have to ship it and all those uh, things. In many ways, it's the next evolution. Some could say of art and and the selling and and purchasing and and you know that whole system. I would think so. One thing I was going to add that uh, would be interesting, I guess, to your audience, it's that um, the the house I'm in right now burned down in the 1993 Malibu fire. Mm-hmm. So a lot of my work, all my uh, uh, like paintings and things, I mean, you know, album covers and things that they done, I mean, enormous amount of work actually burned with the house. Oh no! And I actually that that situation turned me towards computers. Like I felt like, you know, if I had all my stuff on the computer, I could just grab the computer and just run out of the house and throw it in the back of the car instead of like plots and plots and plots. I mean, I've really lost a lot of stuff. But I really changed my thinking a lot. I mean, I, I went straight from being an analog, you know, old school guy to basically buying completely into the future. And then I thought that I had lost a lot of stuff, but because of the fact that I'm a commercial artist and everything I ever did, literally everything I ever did up to that point was printed. I mean, mm-hmm. I never really... Uh, there's not like a bunch of paintings where Jim just sat down and painted and put them up in the closet. I, I, I never had time to do it. Right. So when uh, eBay came along, I found that I could actually buy a lot of things back and have a, a record of things that I had done. So I ended up buying like all the albums I did back, all the movie posters. You know, so I, I was able to actually get a copy of everything. Wow. Wow. And one question on that tip uh, pertaining to movies, we, we didn't go too far into it as you were saying you were pursuing interests opportunities would come up you would just your art would sort of help guide you to your next thing was film part of that process or did you seek it out how how did you add that element to your arsenal i guess because i was doing album cover somebody asked me to do a a movie poster way back in the 70s and I like movies as much as I like music, so I'm, I'm like a gigantic movie fan. And I, I start, I started doing movie posters. I didn't really think about it, but I'd studied movie posters and I, I understood them really well. So I didn't really have any trouble, you know, jumping over to movie posters. So I started doing all, all kinds of movie posters. I just, uh, I mean, at the same time I was doing all the album covers, I was doing movie posters, and I was doing advertising for. Uh, I mean, one of the things I've always done is sort of hedge my bet because I never really knew. Like what was going to pan out, right? I mean, the album mm. covers were going fantastic during the seventies, and I was killing myself doing that. The movie posting the same thing. So I'd be working on six jobs at once. I'd just like lines across the wall. I go from one to another. But I also uh, did advertising art because that paid enormous amounts of money. I mean, I'd get like you know fifteen thousand dollars for painting a baseball for the Dodgers. That's like a baseball takes me like you know half a day, right? So I found that to be like uh, and in magazine illustrations too. I like those a lot. I just like those because I grew up with magazine illustrations. I like the, the quirkiness of like what artists did. So I did a lot of stuff for Psychology Today and, and Wee Magazine and Playboy and things like that. I mean, but I, I guess I did a little of everything, right? Yeah. Yeah. And again, it, it, it sounds like you knew and trusted your skill set. You knew and trusted that connection to those inner creative wellspring of ideas. and allowed yourself the opportunity to to let that be put through your own creative process and then the output was 
in all these different forms that we're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I could, I could understand like, uh, I didn't have to adapt very much. I mean, I, I was, I've always been really good at, uh, looking at something and be able to figure out how it was done. You know what I mean? It's like, if I go to an art show or something like that, I can like look, I basically have x-ray eyes. And I can look right through <laughs> somebody's style and I can see exactly what they were trying to do and like what, what kind of paints they could use. So I could have been like a great art forger just because I, you know, <laughs> it just works that way. It's just where my head works, right? So with movie posters, I, I you know, I intuitively understood like uh, the composition because movie posters are a whole kind of a beast by itself. Like album covers can be funky and weird. And you can have like some kind of flying bird through space or, I mean, you can have almost anything on an album cover in the 70s as long as it was done like uh, like a precision icon. It had to be this really beautiful, iconic thing that could sit in record store. People go like, yeah, that's the new whatever, right? right. Movie posters are a different kind of a beast. They like, they need to tell a story, especially in the 70s. They had to tell a story. So they had to have like, you know, like backgrounds. They had to have characters. I mean, basically it was like, it was a, it was a static trailer for the film. You know? And, and when you would transition and do transition between these different mediums, is it, are you tapping into a different creative source internally or is it all coming from the same place and meaning like with movie poster do you have to put on your storytelling hat when you're creating for 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 a film is there a different element that you're channeling when you're you know working with robbie and creating the imagery in the desert like how does that how do those two things differ even though they're coming from the same creative input uh well, some of them, I would say some, some things are expressive. I'd say the album covers in general, at the beginning especially, were more expressive. Like, sort of like the rock posters in the 90s. I mean, I really enjoyed doing those because they were very expressive. I could do whatever I wanted to do. Movie posters were a commercial job. And I had to like follow the dictates of the client. I had to like make the actor look like the actors. The background had to be, if it was a car, it had to be the car that was in the movie. The lettering style, usually... In those days, they didn't always have like a logo. So literally, they let me create logos. A lot of times, I was able to create. That was one of the things they liked about me, the fact that I could actually create like a pretty cool logo for the movie uh, wow. when I did the poster and I would just throw it in. I mean, I did that for the Beastie Boys. I mean, the Beach Boys, when I did their uh, 15 big ones, uh, they needed like, you know, I did 15 big ones and I had this neon lettering. And I said, oh man, can we do like, you know, the Beach Boys and like that kind of lettering? And I said, well, yeah, yeah. And so I just did it. And I mean, they've used it like ever since their logo. And I just wow. basically gave it to them, right? Because, so oh, yeah, I could do that. Yeah, I would say movie posters were, were more of a commercial job. Because you had to, you had to really, like, fit exactly what the, the movie company needed. And they had, to, they had actors. The actors had to look like actors, uh, backgrounds, whatever was in the movie. So it became, like, a, a static trailer. But the most creative part was the fact that in those days, they didn't really come up with, like, logos off the beginning. You know, they didn't have, like, a logo or they didn't have branding or they didn't have, like, a, a style guide or anything like that. So he would let me make up um, whatever lettering. Like I worked for Peter Fonda. I did one in Nevada. But a lot of times they would just hire me to do the logos, you know, and then he would slap on some illustration I did. Wow. Wow. And I like that that's also a, a benefit of working with you for, to, to all of these uh, entities, you know, f- film, music. It's like they knew they were getting the added value of a potential logo or something that could help be branded around whether it's the band itself or a movie or whatever it, you know and, and for you it came so naturally that it was part of the package 
Yeah, I would say that would that's one of the things that probably kept me from ever not getting any work because of the fact that I could I was actually really good at lettering. I mean, I could do literally any style and I could do it like really like I did Chicago, you know. I mean, a lot of bands just hired me to do versions of their their logo, you know, when they wanted logos. So that that was a, a probably a strong basis of my of my style and the fact that I could always fall back on that. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I really appreciate and have enjoyed hearing how really you've you've pursued what's motivated you, what's interested you, and and let that be the sounds like the guiding beacon for all that you've both accomplished and, and are still working on, you know, and, and and haven't really strayed from that path of, hey, these are my interests. I know what I like, I know what I'm good at. I'm just gonna let that continue to serve as my my path and and you know it's it's worked out as it should i think yeah i think i think you have to be bold in life i mean life is you know like life is an adventure and you know you really only have one as far as we know although i'm a buddhist but i don't really like worried i'm not anticipating any kind of reincarnation that would bring me back in any kind of form that i look like now but uh you know you've got to be bold like really take a big bite because i mean mm-hmm. The thing is, I've always wanted to sort of reflect my time and like show the world as I see it to people, and and I had the ability to do it. So that part's always been fun, and people responded well. You know, I could have just been, I guess, a half-ass artist that nobody really cared much about. I'd, <laughs> I'd be sitting, uh, you know, I always imagine myself sitting at Disneyland, being one of those uh, quick sketch artists. You know, like, hey, Steve, so what's your favorite thing? Oh, you're a tennis player. Okay, all right, <laughs> and then. But, here you go. Here's you know, and, and you get five bucks, and it's the next person, right? Characters, right? Right. So I was, I, I could always draw well enough to like, I I had these fallback positions where I thought like, okay, I could always just go out to Disney and just sit in one of those tables, right, and be an in betweener. Yeah, but fate had different ideas, so it worked out well. Anyway, I'm glad you you interviewed me tonight. Well, Jim, it's been a fantastic conversation, and uh, appreciate you coming on. Okay, Steve, thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to another episode of Lights, Camera, Crypto, a podcast produced by Matt Bogart and Essential Media. Music by Brian Duncan and Kareem Imes. If you enjoyed this experience, be sure to rate and subscribe to our show and to follow at Sladen and at Decential Media for additional content. <laughs>